Welcome to The World We Got This Podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the scale of the challenge and ask them what society and each of us as individuals can do to help solve it. I guess years ago as a small girl. So I remember opening up uh, an old photo album and seeing a black and white photo of a woman perched on a chair next to a record player. It was taken uh, in 1921. She had boarded a boat with her two little boys from what was then Poland and eventually arrived in New York. And she got off the boat and she was inspected by a border official. And he examined her body and saw that she had arthritis. So she was denied entry into the U.S. and deported back to Poland, and she died in the Holocaust years later. And I remember looking at the story and thinking a bunch of things. So one thing I thought was just the tragedy of somebody being denied entrance just because they have arthritis and deported to a country that was fairly risky for Jews at the time, even in the 1920s. And I remember also thinking how ridiculous it was because the benefit for U.S. citizens of having one less person with arthritis didn't seem justified given the harm that this aunt would face. We may be more than 100 years after that photograph was taken, but decisions around who should and should not be allowed to migrate into a country are still having enormous consequences for individuals and the topic is preoccupying societies around the world. Whether it's Donald Trump's wall between the US and Mexico, the UK's recent plans to send those arriving in small boats to Rwanda, or discussions about who should give homes to the millions of people displaced by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, migration is a key issue for our world. But what impact does it really have on a country and its resources? Are the politicians in step with the public on this? And what is it like for those caught up in the red tape of the immigration system? My name is Julie Weldon, and in this episode, we will be talking about all these issues and more with academics here in the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London. We'll be talking with Professor Jonathan Porters, Dr Molly Gerver and Dr Leonie Ansems de Vries. Let's start by looking at what the evidence tells us about the impact migration has on a country. Here is Professor Jonathan Portis of King's School of Politics and Economics and the Policy Institute on a common fear that additional migrants will put too much strain on already overstretched public services. Migration adds to the demand for public services, but it also, at least potentially, adds to the supply of public services, most notably because migrants who work pay taxes. So the question is not, do migrants increase the demand for public services? Absolutely, they The question is, Um, Do they provide, because of the boost they give to the economy, to jobs, and hence to tax revenues, do they provide more than enough to cover that necessary increase in public services? Um, And while there's varying evidence on that, in the UK, it seems reasonably clear that migrants, because they tend to be younger and because they tend to be in work, actually contribute more to public services in performed taxation than they take out. Now, of course, whether or not the government spends that increased revenue on the public services we need, is a political choice. Another cited reason for restricting migration is concerns it will reduce the available jobs for existing residents or citizens of a country. 
However, Jonathan says migration doesn't seem to have much of an impact on employment, as migrants are consumers too, which can lead to the creation of more jobs. It does, on average, mean economies grow somewhat faster than they otherwise would have, and perhaps that they are more, somewhat more productive than they otherwise would be. As for those distributional consequences, well, we do see a bit of evidence of that. So in the UK, for example, there is some evidence that some low-paid workers did suffer when we saw lots of people coming in from the EU in the 2000s to do relatively low-paid jobs. But those effects were pretty small. And in fact, I think one of the sort of key things that we found out over the last 20 years in advanced economies is that the sort of feared negative consequences of migration, either on jobs or wages, really just aren't there in the data. We can think about migration from an economic perspective as being rather like trade. So just like free trade, migration is likely to benefit an economy overall. It makes us, on average, all of us better off, just like free trade tends to make all of us better off. But again, like trade, it may also have some distributional consequences. By that, I mean that some people may gain and some people may lose, even if on average we're all better off. In the UK, the topic of immigration was a prominent feature of debates around Brexit, and in particular was used by those in favour of leaving the EU. Jonathan says that many of the arguments around Brexit had relatively little to do with the EU directly, but free movement was related to EU membership. And as the Leave slogan of Take Back Control showed, this was a topic that resonated with many UK voters. He says the predictions of many economists around the negative impact of Brexit on UK trade have proved accurate. However, on immigration, which was predicted to fall, things have not turned out as many expected. In qualitative terms, the increase in migration from outside the EU has so far significantly outweighed the fall in migration from inside the EU. Um, so rather than migration going down overall, as we had anticipated, so far at least, it's actually gone up. And we are now seeing higher levels of immigration. Well, the, the latest statistics were the highest level ever seen, partly driven by Ukraine and Hong Kong, which are not directly related to Brexit, but partly driven by this new system. This, I think, was not expected um, either by people who supported Brexit or those who opposed it necessarily. You know, it will be interesting to see, obviously, how long it continues. But so far, at least, what we're seeing is this sort of reorientation of, of migration to the UK, in some sense, closer to where it was 20 or 30 years ago, with lots of migration from India and, to some extent, uh, Nigeria and some other parts of Africa, Pakistan and Bangladesh, and, of course, you know, much less migration within the EU. When we had free movement, it was relatively easy for people to come here to work in low-skilled, low-paid occupations, even if the people themselves weren't low-skilled necessarily, but people would come to work in those occupations, particularly in sectors that needed relatively flexible labour, where people move in and out of jobs quite quickly, so accommodation, food services, pubs, transport and logistics. So those sectors have definitely lost out because they can't get those people anymore. By contrast, the new system is considerably more liberal very much more liberal for people coming to work in the health and care sector from outside Europe. So we've seen a huge increase in the numbers coming in those sectors, and also to some extent more liberal for medium and high-skilled workers coming to work in business, services, IT, and indeed higher education, which we thought might suffer as a result of Brexit, but so far it hasn't really. So there are definitely winners and losers here. 
we've sort of reorientated migration towards these sort of middle and high skill jobs and then also towards health and care. The system we have now, while far from perfect, does appear reasonably well designed and well functioning. And my view is we should see how it settles in over a few years before making any major changes. On attitudes to immigrants, he says the UK seems to do reasonably well on measures of integration and cohesion with most people saying they get on with their neighbours and are tolerant and accepting of people from other cultures. The recent World Value Survey in which the Policy Institute here participated shows that Brits are right at the top compared to other countries of people who say they don't care what colour or religion their next door neighbours are. To the extent that we can measure these things, and it's very difficult, the UK seems to perform reasonably well and we seem to, to do quite well at uh, integrating migrants from different backgrounds. That, of course, doesn't mean that everything's wonderful and that there aren't lots of problems and issues. There obviously are. But on the whole, when you compare us with other countries, the, the evidence is fairly positive on that. So we've heard what the evidence shows about the ways immigration can impact societies. But what about the effects it can have on individuals caught up in the system? Dr. Leonie Anselms de Vries of King's Department of War Studies has looked at United Nations instruments such as the Global Compact on Migration, which many countries have signed up to. She found, despite being well-intentioned, the wording which talks about safe, orderly and regular migration can set up ideas of good and bad migrants. The way in which this is framed in these compacts sets up this opposition between regular and orderly migration, which would be seen as legitimate migration of those that take regular routes. And then the kind of underlying assumption is that there's this other types of migration, which is problematic. If you cannot get a visa, that's one example of how a particular kind of language may actually seem very positive, but at the same time, there's underlying assumptions about what migration is. And I think what is sort of an other assumption that's underlying that is that there is a kind of good migration and there's bad migration, right? Certain types of migration that are regular with people that have the right passports is fine, but what they call large movements is problematic. And But these are often the people that, that don't have access to those other kinds of routes. And those are, those are often people from the global south and so on that are, that are marginalised. There's this very close association suddenly by saying, or between this idea of people taking dangerous routes, and those people are the danger, right? That gets conflated really easily. Her work has also looked at migrant communities across Europe, often in places of transit or unsettlement. She explored how these communities have been affected by European approaches to migration management, including stopping people from moving or pushing them in a different direction. On the one hand, these are very violent spaces. Um, what we see at the moment is there's a very explicit strategy by the French government and supported by the UK government to make sure that communities do not arise, that people do not form a community so that they can sort of stay there and they can thrive in any kinds of way. And that's explicit policy. And they, they, do, they do everything they can from forcefully moving people around to raiding any, any settlements that, ha that are created to all sorts of things, um, to detaining people uh, and so on. And, it, and that goes down to having very regular raids, for instance, so, to people. So, and again, these are people that do not have the right passports to travel. So they're kind of stuck. They can't go anywhere at that point. And very often what we see, for instance, in these places is that the police will come in. They just raid a place. They do 
everything, absolutely everything to make sure that communities cannot arise. So they will slash tents, they will make food inedible by putting tear gas in or whatever, right? It is, it is very much a kind of a, what I've called a politics of exhaustion, trying to exhaust people in whichever way they can. And there's very there's physical violence in there, but there's also the kind of temporal violence of, of trying to really grind people down, exhaust them over time, making it more and more difficult to stay in a certain place. So I'm, I'm interested in, I mean, I think it's, it's really important to document that violence for one thing. Um, but also I'm always really interested in the ways in which people still continue to try and create a little space of belonging and often do not give up despite the fact that they are absolutely exhausted in, in so many different ways. And sometimes that exhaustion also then creates a form of community because people understand one another, right, and are able to support one another in that way, whether it's migrant communities or others supporting them as well. Even if they are subjected to a lot of violence, they're not just poor victims. They're people with their own histories, with their own backgrounds, with their own ideas, who will quite often keep going if they can. A lot of the work I'm doing is very, I try and do it in a way that really highlights and platforms the voices and experience of the people I work with, of people that are forcibly displaced, so rather than just reporting on it. Um, what I try to do is work together with people and, for instance, through film to photography and other arts-based methods, co-create these spaces where these experiences can be shared uh, and documented and, and then also inform research as well as policy and so on. Leonie says, in the UK, some of the discussions and language used is toxic, stoking fears and negative narratives. However, people's actions in 2015, 2016 and in response to the Ukraine crisis Give a different picture. It's amazing to see how many people have opened their homes to host people. So I think on the ground, there are a lot of people who provide a lot of support. She thinks there is a deliberate attempt by politicians to create divisions between those seen as deserving of protection and those who do not. So that narrative is there's some people that are fleeing and that come to the UK regularly, and we will support them. So that could be through resettlement routes, that could be through the kind of sponsorship that we do for people in Ukraine. There is this vision of those are the deserving ones, and then all the others are the problematic, and who are sort of, you know, vilified and, and threatened being deported, and, and some who sometimes are deported as well. It creates scales of kind of legitimacy and deservingness, but also because in practice it just falls down that distinction. And absolutely, there is also that division is often quite a racialized division as well between those people that we feel sort of, I mean, the, the we as some people feel are like us, right, and are, are similar to us and those that are not much more often it works along racial lines than, than other lines. And there's gender lines in there as well. Again, if we think about kind of the black, you know, migrant who is again regarded even as a threat and so on. Her work also highlighted difficulties distinguishing between economic migrants and others seeking refuge. She met people who had fled conflicts in Africa and worked in Libya for some time before it became too unstable, so they moved to Italy. On arriving in Italy, the paperwork they were asked to fill in did not give them the option to state they were fleeing persecution, but did ask about employment. So many said they had been working in Libya and were keen to continue to work. This meant they were seen as purely economic migrants. She says this is just one example of how dividing people into deserving and undeserving migrants is problematic, as almost all are just seeking a better life. Whether that better life means to actually stay alive, or whether that better life means better opportunities, that is the case for most people. I think most people would be very glad to contribute to an economy, to be part of a society. If you are coming from a background of poverty and so on, why would that not be a way that you're also forced 
why is it only particular? Like it's, it has to be persecution, it has to be conflict or war, but why not include poverty in there? So in, in, in those kind of ways, those distinctions are very artificial. Dr. Molly Gerber of King's School of Politics and Economics researches the idea of proportionality and its importance to migration. This is directly linked to how she felt when she heard that story of her great-great-great-aunt being sent back to Poland from the USA. Essentially, my intuition even then was that this immigration enforcement, it lacked proportionality. Proportionality is a principle that's often used by lawyers, by philosophers, even by politicians. And it basically means that even if you think some end is justified, there are certain ways of trying to get to that end that aren't because they involve just too much harm. So you might think it's justified to try to reduce theft, but it's not proportional to put someone in prison for years if they just steal a candy bar. So certain types of benefits don't justify the harm. And I think in immigration control, we need to have the same kind of attitude. She carried out research to see what the public in the UK and US thought about migration and proportionality. More than 1,700 people in the UK and 6,000 in the US were shown different vignettes, very short stories describing something a migrant or a group of migrants could face. They varied in thousands of different ways, with individuals or groups being deported, some not, some detained, some choosing not to migrate, and different levels of harm they might face from none through to fatal consequences. And this harm could result from different sources, including authorities, poverty and smugglers. We learned that when people were given vignettes of refugees, they were much less likely to support the enforcement. Importantly, when people were given vignettes of migrants who were fleeing extreme poverty, so they technically weren't refugees according to the law. So according to the law, someone's a refugee if they're fleeing persecution because of their ethnicity or their political affiliation or their social identity. So these were people who are not fleeing persecution, but just fleeing extreme poverty, people were much less likely to support enforcement against such individuals. They were also less likely to support enforcement if it entailed the migrants being killed compared to merely injured, more likely to support enforcement involved no harm compared to injury or being killed. Her work also addressed a specific form of immigration enforcement called carrier sanctions, which is when the government of a country tells airlines that if they transport people without visas, then they'll be fined. And if it happens often enough, they'll lose their license to even fly to that country. Her work found that people were also opposed to harm that might come to migrants from such policies. When people were given vignettes where refugees were unable to board a flight or a migrant couldn't board a flight because they couldn't get a visa and as a result, they faced harm from malnutrition in their home country, people were much less likely to support that enforcement compared to somebody who couldn't get on a flight because they couldn't get a visa, but they didn't face any harm in their home country. So people were really sensitive to the harms that migrants face. They were sensitive to whether migrants are forced to migrate. They were sensitive to proportionality, this policy. And this was true even for people who did not want more migrants. People thought that if a migrant couldn't get a visa because the quota was already filled and they were subject to enforcement that led to their death or their likely death, even people who thought there were too many migrants in the UK didn't support that enforcement. 
So we learned that people were not only sensitive to proportionality, but even people who didn't want a lot of migrants in the UK were also sensitive to an extent to this principle of proportionality. She thinks her research shows the current UK government is out of step with the views of the public. The UK government policy of requiring refugees who arrive by boat to move to Rwanda, despite the fact that Rwanda has a history of deporting refugees to unsafe countries, despite the fact that Rwanda has a history of not providing sufficient food to refugees, that's a disproportional response. We learned that citizens do have opinions consistent with proportionality, and that suggests that policymakers have the political mandate they have the necessary popular support to ensure that immigration enforcement is far more proportional than it is today. The Rwandan policy is likely not popular if we account for the fact that people significantly distinguish between enforcement that leads to risks and enforcement that doesn't. So this policy doesn't really care about that distinction, but citizens do. On carrier sanctions too, her work suggests the public would not consider the risks to be acceptable. People are sympathetic to those who are harmed from carrier sanctions. The government should rethink that policy. For example, that policy leads to millions of refugees deciding to pay smugglers or remaining in their home country where they face risks of being killed because of their ethnicity or their gender or where they're killed by smugglers or killed along the route, such as those who are killed in the Sahel. So because they can't board a flight directly and safely arrive in a wealthy country, they're forced to remain or pay smugglers and then they're killed. So I think these policies lack proportionality. The fact that even transporting a single refugee on board a flight will result in the airline getting fined, forcing refugees to take extremely unsafe risks, that lacks proportionality. Another policy which is very recent, which I'd be surprised if I doubt the vast majority of citizens support this policy in the UK, but there's a policy where if an individual arrives on boat and they're slaves, so they're victims of modern slavery, literally slaves, they can't access any UK support to be free from slavery. They can't access modern slavery assistance. This is a policy announced on March 7th that clearly lacks proportionality I think the government doesn't need to support these policies in order to continue to be popular. She says politicians shouldn't just look at polls, which ask people how much they support migration or which migrants they are happy to admit, because these don't account for people's opinions on enforcement. The only way they can know what political mandate they have when it comes to immigration is to ask people both what they want, that's important, but also how they want to get it. And this is what our survey did, and this is what policymakers should be doing. She says one example of a disproportionate response were the policies enacted under President Trump that resulted in children being detained. Even people who thought there should be a reduction in immigration or at least not an increase in immigration, even they thought imprisoning children is a disproportional response to that end. Her work also looked at attitudes to migrant workers who help countries with healthcare challenges during the pandemic. It found that in the UK, 60% of people supported permanent residency for those frontline healthcare workers who had supported the NHS and the country during this time. She said some researchers find this worrisome, as if it's about people trading, risking their lives to try to get residency. But she thinks it's actually more about human nature and gratitude. So if somebody is a firefighter, or if somebody is a lifeguard, and they run into a burning building and they save your life, or they swim into an ocean and they bring you to shore, 
you kind of owe them something. You at least owe them gratitude. And you shouldn't express that gratitude by saying, thanks a lot, see you later, and never talk to them again. At least you should show gratitude by helping them if they're ever in need. I asked her how difficult it is to have a sensible and balanced conversation on migration, given how contentious and political it is. These are really nuanced, careful conversations that people are absolutely able to have. But you don't have time or focus if you're trying to argue against extreme policies or you're the minority that thinks these policies are great. I think one reason that the government implements policies that are extremely violent and then entail significant harm and that maybe the majority don't even support, like the policy of not allowing victims of slavery to access help, is that it distracts people from other problems that are happening in the country. It distracts them from the lack of teachers being paid enough the lack of qualified nurses, the time it takes for ambulance drivers to arrive. Leonie also thinks it's challenging to have a balanced conversation because of government policies and a narrative on migration which has become so toxic and violent. It's become very difficult to really think, well, actually, can we just go back to people's thinking about everyone as a person? Basic rights, at the very least. We were so far removed from that at this point in the UK that it is very difficult. Having said that, I'm always encouraged by how many people do want to have a different conversation and do create different spaces to do that. If you're looking at current government policy, and I think at the moment we're in quite an extreme period in terms of the kind of stuff that's being proposed and that's being you know, pushed through Parliament. But at the same time, I think we need to look at that much longer lineage of where it has come from. And that's decades long. And it's interesting that some, some of the stuff about what we call hostile environment now was actually proposed and implemented under the previous Labour government as well. So if we think about detention, for instance, and then we can go we can go much further. We need to think about colonial histories as well in terms of the way in which that has shaped where we are today by, for instance, thinking about the approach to small boats, thinking about sending people to uh, Rwanda, potentially, or other sort of so-called offshore places. And, and that is, in very short terms, not in line with international law, if we want to we start with that, it's absolutely inhumane. It's very, very violent. So it really feeds into what I've called the politics of exhaustion. And it is that deliberate strategy to try and dehumanise people. There's even home office papers that will tell you that these kind of policies will not work. It will not stop any boats or not a lot. What it does, it displaces it. And again, we can look back at what's happened in the Mediterranean in the past decade. The moment you start trying to stop people moving from one particular side of the Mediterranean to another, the movement just goes somewhere else because these people have nowhere else to go and they have no regular routes to take. And this is exactly what we see. We can go back to the, the late 1990s as well if we're looking at the border between France and the UK. And we've seen this exact displacement effect, people trying to take boats or get into lorries or get onto trains. Now it's small boats. Right. But it's just another iteration of that same issue because we're not tackling the real issue, which is the way the border works and the fact that those safe and legal pathways are not accessible for people. So this is something else that's going on. And it is about dehumanising people. It is also about exhausting everyone who's trying to support migrants and refugees. It means that people that want to support migrants and refugees need to start acting again, need to go to the courts, need to protest, need to do all this kind of work. That means they are not able to do other work that would actually support migrants or that would actually further it. So they're always kind of at the very, they're always fighting for the very, very basic rights. 
Jonathan says working in a contentious political and social context is part of being a social scientist. Our job is to do the best we can to communicate what our analysis, what our work says, and to accept that sometimes it's going to be hard, sometimes it's going to be misrepresented, sometimes you're going to get very annoyed by what other people say, either about the facts or about stuff that, that you do. A line that you get from some people like Nigel Farage, oh, we're not allowed to talk about immigration. Um, you know, the UK political debate and media have been talking about immigration, certainly for all the time that I've been working on immigration issues, which is now a quarter of a century. But of course, immigration was a topic of political debate in uh, the late 19th and early 20th century here when we had the Aliens Immigration Act, when people were complaining about there being too many Jews in the East End of London. There's a topic in the uh, 1960s, of course, when uh, Enoch Powell made his Rivers of Blood speech. The idea that nobody's allowed to talk about immigration is, is obviously nonsense. What uh, Farage and some others mean is that they want to talk about immigration on their own terms. And I would like to talk about it on my own terms and the terms that, that academics and researchers talk about it. But that will always be contested. He says the British public seems to have become more relaxed in its attitudes to immigration over the last 10 years with a significant drop in the proportion who want large reductions in immigration. And that's despite and notwithstanding people's concern over uh, the irregular crossings and small boats across the channel. But it looks like most people on the whole tend to separate out those two issues, one being one about who should be able to come here to work or to study, whatever, and the other about what's perceived as loss of control over our borders, which I think people tend to think of as being a rather different issue. He says this change in attitude might be in part because Brexit has enabled people to feel that the UK has control now of its own borders. It might also be the pandemic illustrated the need for people to come to the UK to fill essential roles. Like Leonie, he says the arrival of people in small boats is just a change in how they travel, but there have always been people crossing the channel to seek asylum. He said cooperation with the French authorities and having legitimate routes for asylum seekers will be needed as just trying to deal with the small boats by enforcement or deportation is not going to work. Andy points out there is no silver bullet policy to resolve these complex issues. So what would he like to see governments do to better manage migration? There are lots of better things that could be done to make it better. Equally, I think the idea that we're going to have some sort of global agreement on changing the refugee convention to make it more workable and to facilitate migration flows. I think, you know, we, we can't be too utopian about this. Or we can be utopian about it, but we should be realistic about what can be achievable. There are lots of ways in which we could make the asylum and humanitarian system better for the people who are in it, fairer between countries, and to reduce the sort of tragedies we see at borders, the borders of the Mediterranean, and to some extent, the borders in the Channel. But again, we shouldn't wait for some sort of great set of global agreements because those aren't coming anytime soon. We have to concentrate on rather shorter term, more practical measures, which involve some combination of bilateral and multilateral cooperation, arrangement for safe routes, provision for uh, partnership, mobility and training and so on, partnerships that let some people come to work from countries where there are lots of people who want to leave the country. Some combination of all of the things will, will, I hope, make things better. But equally, we shouldn't imagine that, that we're going to solve any of these issues anytime soon. King's, with its ethos of service to society, is playing its part in trying to help by offering opportunities for displaced students and academics to access higher education, as well as her research on migration, 
Leonese director of the King's Sanctuary Programme, was set up in 2015 in response to the crisis in Syria and other parts of the world which led to increased migration into Europe. It offers opportunities for displaced students and academics to access higher education in the UK and collaborates with other higher education institutions to try to develop better and less reactive approaches to migration. One of the things that we've been very actively involved in is really thinking about how do we create frameworks that are that are sustainable so that if there are people that are forcefully displaced either it's one group, whether it's Ukrainians now or people from Afghanistan or others, or in the future, we are ready to respond and we are ready to respond collaboratively because collaboratively we can do a lot more than individually as institutions. The programme provides students in the UK from a background of forced migration with scholarships and living allowances so they can attend university. King's has also been affiliated with the Padlia programme from 2015 to 2021, which offered online education and blended learning with countries around the world, including Lebanon and Jordan, to offer foundation programmes so people could access higher education. To date, millions have accessed the courses and more than 100 students have gone on to university. Now the King's Sanctuary programme has moved in a new direction around developing safe and legal ways to help refugees into education, as Leonie explains. A lot of people, if they don't have access to the right papers, but they need to flee, they end up travelling irregularly. That's the only way that they can travel. So one of the things we've been doing at King's in the past five years or so is to explore whether we could create a safe and legal pathway into UK and into UK higher education. And what we have done is work together with various partners, including the UK Home Office, UNHCR, Citizens UK, as well as sort of local councils to create a pilot in an existing scheme. So that was the community sponsorship programme. So as part of that, community groups can support a refugee family. Um, so they, they are resettled by the UNHCR, arrive in the UK with refugee status, and then there's a community group that supports them. And we think if we could do that as King's is supporting community and then offer a scholarship as well to one member of the family, then we could sort of create a safe and legal pathway. So the family from Syria was resettled to the UK and King's have been supporting them. And the eldest daughter is now studying at King's, doing a degree in engineering, which is fantastic. And for us, that was great because that was resettling one family, which is fantastic. But it was kind of a pilot. It was the first step to really thinking about how can we create this higher education safe and legal pathway in a much bigger scale. And then after the invasion of Ukraine, suddenly there's this gained momentum again, as well as urgency. The programme worked with other universities in the UK to develop a pathway to resettle Ukrainian students and academics in Britain, including wraparound support and scholarships. So far, around 60 students from Ukraine have been helped this way by Kings and partner institutions. And the team are now working on a framework for future programmes of this kind. So now we've gone from sort of doing one family to doing 60 people and, and counting. But also it can be adapted to different circumstances. So if, if there's a framework or a model, that means that we can use it at King's. Other universities can do it as well. But we can also think about whenever it can be used anytime, of course, but whenever there is an issue with conflict breaking out or whatever and people need to go somewhere, we can say, look, this is what you can use. Looking to the future, Molly has mixed feelings. So on the one hand, I'm not optimistic because the government passes legislation and supports policies of enforcement that involves such substantial harm that even people that don't support more migration, they wouldn't necessarily support that. So in some ways, I'm really pessimistic. On the other hand, I'm optimistic because it, it doesn't have the political mandate to do it exactly. I mean, 
citizens are in fact quite sensitive to principles of proportionality. They're sensitive to how much harm migrants face and whether the migrants are forced to migrate. They're sensitive to it even when the migrants are harmed super indirectly because they couldn't get a visa, so they paid a smuggler, and then the smuggler brought them through a desert, and then they face malnutrition in the desert. It's really indirect harm people are sensitive to. So the question is just how we can connect what most people feel, the humanity that people do feel towards migrants, even people that are anti-immigrant, the humanity they feel to government policy, how we can how we can persuade the government to listen to the people and how we can persuade people to try to persuade the government to change its stance. And I'm not quite sure how to do that, but maybe a start is emphasizing not so much individual stories because people can always say, oh, well, that migrant shouldn't be deported, but thousands should, but emphasizing information about precisely what happens to migrants when they're subject to these policies, not just talking about dramatic cases like the Rwandan policy, but the less dramatic ones where people are indirectly harmed. Leonie points out, people have always moved with natural barriers providing restrictions in the past. And these have been added to with political and economic barriers. She thinks it's the restrictions that have turned movement into a problem. And she says, we also need to think about the positive effects of people moving around the world. We have the fantastically diverse, interactive, amazing world that we live in. It's come about through migration. Some of it forceful, some of it really problematic and very very violent. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's created and it's brought us all so much. So I think that's one way of thinking about it that will hopefully help. At the same time, at a more practical level, I am very much encouraged by the number of initiatives that we have seen. And this is like very much very small, you know, within society and people opening their doors and so on and creating all sorts of initiatives. So there is a lot there. And I think hopefully at some point with a change of government, we can have a little bit more of sort of celebrating that as well. She's also very encouraged when looking specifically at the higher education sector and its positive contribution to discussions and actions on migration. On the one hand, the ways in which the higher education sector is now coming together and we're starting to build some frameworks and we're starting to build more collective discussions and actions around this. And I think that's great to see. But also I'm very encouraged by my students who, if I look at what I understood about migration when I was a student and I look at them so much more, but also all the things that I've done, there's so many of the students that I know that have been very actively involved, that have been writing stuff, that have been researching stuff and really want to understand this issue, as well as kind of create this positive impact in the world. So that's very encouraging as well. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series.